You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Interstate Batteries. Interstate Batteries has been a proud supporter of the Sportsman's Nation since day one. So if you need batteries for your truck, batteries for your trail cameras, TV remote controls, flashlights, you name it, Interstate Batteries has what you need. They have thousands of retail locations all over the United States. So stop in, talk to a battery specialist, or for more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. A decade ago, I began my archery journey. An older, well-used compound that I bought off a friend in my hand, a cheap foam target in front of a dirt mound, and a half a dozen arrows cut to who knows what, and at that point, I hadn't even begun to understand what spine is. Knocking an arrow, full grip on the bow, and drawing the string well past my ear, I pulled the trigger on the release. The string slapped my arm and sent the arrow into the dirt mound. I let out a war hoop. Well, it was more of a hurt cry and watched my forearm turn a bright red. Not one to give up easily, I knocked a second arrow, drew, and the exact result happened again. String into forearm, arrow into dirt, four-letter words echoing across the countryside. As one who learned to ride a bike by falling down and getting back up, I applied the same strategy. Arrow three knocked, string drawn, deep breath, as one would take before their final moments on earth, and smack! I dropped the bow out of pain. A beautiful rainbow of deep purples and blues grew under my skin. Tears welled up in my eyes from the intensity. I cracked a smile, because through the watery, blurred vision, I could see the arrow sticking out of the target. Yes, progress. Welcome to the Huntivore Podcast, where we celebrate our hunting and fishing lifestyle through the utilization and consumption of our wild game. No egos, no status, just catch it, cut it, and cook it. This is episode 41, Tales from the Archer. Nick took a Saturday to explore the Kalamazoo Traditional Archery Expo held each year in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Vendors, boyers, enthusiasts, and first-timers all gathered to share a piece of archery nuance, of simple stick and string. Being more of a collection of conversations, Nick found folks who hold different views about traditional archery. A skeptic, a full-embraced, a character cut from his own cloth, and a legend in the making. While this episode lacks depth in how-to information, I hope it invites you to fall back in time and, and try the idea of simply stick and string. Again, welcome to the Hunt of War podcast, part of the Sportsman's Nation Network. This is an episode that's a step outside of our normal wheelhouse. Instead of food for consumption as a topic, it is more of a food for thought. Rather than a technique or a recipe, 
I have a testimonial and a, a few stories to go along with it. I hope you enjoyed my first story, uh, my own experience with a compound. I basically wanted to show my transparency, saying that uh, we all begin at square one, and we all have those stories of how we first began as archers. What I happened to do a couple years ago is kind of start my journey over again into traditional archery. Traditional, uh, giving the definition of basically a stick and string, either a recurve, either made out of a metal riser or a wood riser and longbow, uh, either a takedown model where it breaks into pieces or a, a single piece. Um, but the idea is that you're taking a step away from technology. We're losing the rests, we're losing the sights, and it's all down to just the bow, the arrow, and the archer. It's a very basic form, and it's got a lot of romanticism around it. Going down to the Kalamazoo Traditional Expo Show, uh, I found a few folks and friends that either I had met along the way or had already become acquaintances with, and I just wanted to get their take on traditional archery. Uh, we find Adam Miller from Bowhunter Chronicles. He's my skeptic of the group. He doesn't want to jump into anything half-hearted or just go along with the crowd. He wants to make sure he's doing his due diligence uh, and being the world's worst bow hunter that he, uh, he claims to be, he wants to at least be the world's most well-rounded archer. So bravo to him, and I'm glad to see that he's taking on something new. We also talk with Neil Summers, who ends up being my fully embraced archer, that he has grabbed onto the traditional way of doing things uh, and basically drank the Kool-Aid on the traditional aspect. And that doesn't just stop at archery. He also gets into fly fishing, into flintlock, muzzle loading, um, and just stuff from the bygone era. Really wants to relive uh, the glory days, as you will, of the sportsman. I also get a chance to talk with Tex Gribner from Tex Gribner Outdoors, an avid traditionalist who's using a really heavy poundage bow. Not just heavy in most standards, but like the heaviest. He himself has a 100-pound draw at 29 inches, which is an incredible amount of power in a bow. So we talk about shooting a heavy bow. And he also gives us some food for thought and that a traditional hunter is going to always be hungry. And it's because of the sport and fair chase that comes along with using primitive tackle. I was also given a chance to talk to the maker and boyer of my current bow, Henry Botnick. Unfortunately, I wasn't a unable to record our conversation, and I'm continually kicking myself for that. But I do recap the high points of our conversation. So without further ado, I'd like you to enjoy each of these conversations. And as you go through, think about it. Is it something that you would like to try as just a different way to continue to sharpen your skills as an archer. Well, hey, folks. Welcome to uh, another edition here of Huntivore. Here we're on location. We're actually down in the fairgrounds of Kalamazoo at the traditional uh, archery convention. And I happened to run into somebody who I didn't expect to run into, but Adam Miller from Bowhunter Chronicles. Adam. 
Nice to see you today. Yeah, you know, I'm just walking around here, looking around, knowing absolutely nothing about what's going on. You know, we we are the, the Bow Hunter Chronicles, but we are strictly traditional. I mean, our last couple podcasts, we've talked to some traditional hunters, and it's piqued my interest. And, um, you know, the last one talking to Jason Samkowiak, and he's, uh, he's talking about getting uh, upset and just throwing his longbow uh, with no regard for anything and not, not worrying about whether it's going to be broken or busting the sight or anything going to be off. Uh, it, it's, it's rather intriguing. So I thought I'd come down here and, and check it out and try and be a little bit, uh, maybe if we can make our podcast a little bit more complete. So Yeah, because in the past you guys have been focused on, it, just your wheelhouse has been compounds. Um, on, on both the hunting side, and you've touched a little on, on target archery. I know that, uh, John, that's, that's where he lives and, and breathes is how can I overtune to get this just going exactly right. Um, but yeah, it's been fun. I know my listeners, some of them have, have jumped onto you as well, as far as listening to the Bowhunter Chronicles. So it's fun to see that, yeah, he doesn't have to be compound chronicles, but be full, uh, bow hunting chronicles. Yeah, I mean, and the the faction of it is, you know, stick to what you know or uh, you know what you what you do, right? So I can come on. We can, we can dance around the subject of like what is a traditional archery, but you know we don't hunt that way. You know, you know, my father in law Frank, who's the uh, color commentary on the podcast, will say from time to time. Um, you know, he is older and came through, uh, worked in the pro shops when they switched over from recurves to the first compounds. And, uh, he was actually one of the bow techs in there tuning them, selling them. So he's real knowledgeable on that. But, you know, as far as us actually using them and, and, and seeing them and, you know, we're, that's not our, 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 not our cup of tea really, but there's another thing and it's just awful to say or, cliche or, or whatever but um you know when we started the podcast so did everybody else so there are so many podcasts that were starting up and you know you could swipe a broad stripe you could you could be more uh pointed in your content or whatever and we're just regular guys having fun and not take ourselves too seriously and at the time it seemed like there was a big push for traditional archery and that was the new cool thing, you know, and, you know, you hear it on other podcasts or on social media and it's, it's, uh, you know, traditional archery, kayak hunting, public lands, like all the things that are romanticized. Um, and so to try not to fall into that, you know, oh, just jumping on the bandwagon thing, I've almost really stayed away from it. I mean, I, I've had a recurve for, oh, probably eight or ten years that I shoot a couple times a year. Uh, I bought it, frankly, to shoot at chipmunks up at our cabin in the in the UP, you know, in between the morning and evening hunt. We'd go out and, you know, at the time, baiting was legal. We had a corn feeder behind the, the camp, and red squirrels are a real problem, you know, getting into everything, and 
So we'd go out there and shoot them with our compounds and destroy arrows. I mean, you know, there's rocks underground. There, you Absolutely know. Blow them up. Oh yeah, and 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 for what, right? So I thought, well, if I buy a recurve, it'll just be fun. It'll be a little bit less. Well, I bought a 50-pound recurve, which I thought was going to be, you know, I shoot a 70-pound bow, so I'm taking a step down. Not <laughs> the case. I mean, I got the bow for Christmas. Took it out in my backyard and I shot it directly through all the way full pass through a picket fence in my backyard and I was like, oh, ah, a little more bow than I expected, expected you know. I don't know. But you know, so I have one and it, it's just it, it's one of those things that keeps popping up. Um, you know, our last couple guests have been traditional bow hunters. The guy that we went and stayed at his cabin out in, in Idaho when we did our elk hunt, he's strictly traditional. He's killed just about everything there is to kill with a longbore recurve and um it's just kind of getting more and more and more intriguing um and like i said just to stay away from the cliche type thing is kind of why i've been more hands off on it and i got enough other things on my plate that you know with traditional archery it seems like you got to shoot every day all the time the whole thing but uh, so i just came down here today to kind of catch some of the seminars and, and you know meet up with some people and ask some questions and hopefully not spend too much money oh there <laughs> yeah you'd think like we're stick and string like this is going to be it's going to be way cheaper but the amount of time and effort that goes into making these bows is incredible like as much as you want to say there's an engineering piece to it there's also a, a huge art piece that goes into making these bows because aesthetics is a huge thing about it and just like you mentioned a moment ago like the romanticism of it that it's a beautiful looking bow it's it's pretty as you take it out uh out in the woods and you know a lot of these guys they don't even wear camo they wear flannel and they wear wool and it's a step back in time coming down here and and talking with guys with experience i i agree with you there's a there's a cliche bit to it. There's a trendiness to going back in time. And I think kind of like as it's going on, like the trendy is the guys that can't cut it. Guys are like, well, this was fun to do for a little bit, but I'm going to go back to my, the way I was doing before. You know, there's going to be the people that are sticking with it at, that find passion in it. Um, I love shooting compounds, but just like you were saying, like, there's such a high stakes game that if I miss just at practice, like I've either sent that arrow into a cornfield and I'm never going to find it again, or I've I've hit a rock and completely shattered it. Where there's a bit of a a, a playfulness with the traditional equipment that I can send it into a stump, and I didn't send it at 350 feet per second. I sent it at 180, so I can go and just pull it out of the stump. So there is a playfulness like like you were saying to it that you can chase squirrels around with it um but yeah you're just just kind of se- or checking out the show seeing what was going on you mentioned a seminar you went and sat in with um snyder was here uh what did he have to to talk about today so he was talking about and i don't know i think maybe for the guys that know what they're doing um i mean there's certainly a lot of people in the seminar but he was talking about uh the different sighting methods and uh, so string walking, face walking, um, you know, shooting a, a tab, shooting a clicker, and then shooting um, like what he called point on. So he was looking at 
the point of the arrow when it was drawn and figuring out what his point on yardage was and then gap shooting from there and kind of incorporating all of that into uh, developing his own, and not like Aaron Snyder's method, but a personal method of doing it. So he just kind of outlined all the ways that you could um, use to to judge distances without sight pins on a, a, a recurve. And the faction of uh, instinctual shooting in there and, and kind of like where his strengths lied and, and where his weaknesses were. Um, and then he talked about, I don't, I don't think you can go to uh, an archery convention anywhere, doesn't matter the equipment. I'm sure if there was a crossbow hunters association meet, uh, you would definitely talk about uh, bolt weight and broadhead size, shape, configuration. So uh, he was talking about uh, arrow weights, uh, a little bit about the Ashby theory and is it, is it necessary for um, white tails at 15 yards? Um, you know, it's built on principles of the Asiatic buffalo and, and killing things in, in Africa. Um, but he was just kind of talking about all the broadheads he shoots, the prices and, um, you know, kind of like what it actually takes to do that. So, um, like I say, for the guys that are in here shooting and, and knowing exactly what they're, what they're doing, um, probably was a whole bunch of nothing. But for me, I picked up some things cause I don't know how to shoot, uh, my recurve as evidenced by all the laughing red squirrels and chipmunks up in the UP. <laughs> Um, so, uh, so for me, it was, I was picked up something new, you know, but it was kind of like, well, I've never been to any of the seminars or anything like that. And it was kind of like sitting in on a podcast uh, to be honest with you. Cause it was like, Oh man, I, I, yeah, I can see how this information, you know, here, there and the other. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. It gives you something to think about. And I hope that, yeah, you get your, now the Greek curve you have right now is, uh, it's, it's a metal recurve. It's a, it's an old, older Martin. Um, and you're working on getting, uh, a Samic Sage. Mm-hmm. Um, is this something that, as you're you're toying around with it, is are you looking to just as an archer develop yourself? Use this as more of a, a, a tool that you can then take to the woods with your compound later, or do you have maybe an aspiration to take the Samic or the uh, the Martin out and actually chase deer with it? Um, so. It's kind of funny, like one of the things that I, I, I talk about on our podcast is that uh, my claim to fame, where my father-in-law is the comedic relief and the and John is the resident expert, I'm the world's worst bow hunter. So that's one of the things I've talked to my, my buddy Josh from uh, Wild Carrot Sense and Attractants and all that stuff, and he's switched over, and, you know, he, he shoots compound still, but he hunts recurve or longbow also and i i say you know i suck at bow hunting as it is like why would i make it want to make it more difficult and he says well if you suck with a compound you can suck with this too so i mean (laughs) it's definitely in my realm of possibility i'm not i'm not trying to to um put two and two together because i don't think it's necessarily apples to apples um I just like the allure of uh, snap shooting, instinctive shooting, and um, I, I really would like to kill something like from the ground up close. And you know that's the hashtag for traditional archery is you know I hunt close and uh, 
all that. So I, I would definitely consider it. But I, I mean, I just listened to, if you listen to the knock on podcast with John Dudley, uh, he just talked with Aaron Snyder. So a lot of the information that he had in his seminar was kind of redundant. It was a lot of the same information. Well, he was talking about like switching over and saying, okay, well, maybe if you wanted to switch over, maybe a turkey hunt, maybe a, uh, a bear hunt over bait where you know the distance, you know, you know, you, you kind of, you can have this stuff all in your mind um, and kind of like a, a training wheels type uh, hunt. And, you know, honestly, the, the, the squirrel hunting is kind of that, you know, because, uh, you know, you're aiming small, missing small. You're, I mean, you're shooting at chipmunks. They're pretty small. So if you can hit a chipmunk at 15 yards, well, then the, the deer is probably going to be easier. But the thing is getting a deer at 15 yards, you know. Yeah, calm enough that you can yeah. then um, get the draw cycle in and, and, and all that. And the bow's taller than you are, Nick, because you're not a real tall guy. So exactly, I mean, we're most of the balls here, sixty-five inch bow uh, <laughs> that you're wielding around and, and not spooking this game at fifteen, ten, whatever yardage you're you're confident in. So it's just one of those like uh, maybe like a bucket list item type thing, and yeah. an excuse to shoot small deer, I guess, because you can say, "Well, I shot it with a recurve, so it was okay." <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, button bucks in Michigan, watch out! Adam Miller's going to be chasing you with a jaguar here. <laughs> Real soon. Um, well, that's good. I'm, I'm glad to hear that you're getting into it because, yeah, I found it that it does. It makes shooting in the backyard fun. Um, I bring that out, and my son and I, like, we, we go out to the backyard and get to shoot, and I'll bring the longbow. I won't bring the compound because i got to stand pretty close for him shooting his little longbow. It's made out of fiberglass. It's the little bear, whatever. But anyway, he'll fling arrows, and so I can stand it his same yardage you know here we are 10 yards and i'm you know i'm going for the the 10 ring or i'm going for the x uh really trying to shrink my groups down so even though i'm that close i can still do work and at some point you know he does put an arrow in the x and then he he feels great because he beat dad so it it does level the the playing field there but i think it it brings fun back to practice as opposed to you know well i can shoot at 40 yards to make it more fun i gotta go now 50 yards when it comes to to compound but that's what that's what it's done for me but yeah like like you're saying i've i've brought out the longbow twice sitting on the ground and i never had an opportunity where a deer came in and it came in either you know wrong corner or either they they smelled me and then went the other other direction so there's not been that opportunity um but it does it does bring excitement back to what's going on because you do see them coming from a long ways away, and you do really get it gets your heart rushing. So to have that opportunity, we're still gunning for that. But yeah, I'm I'm with you. No kills yet. No blood on the arrow, blood on the arrow or the bow. So, um, but yeah, thanks for taking the time. I'm not gonna take your whole day, um, but I do want to know what have you done with some of the venison that you got this past year? You guys had a big dinner actually. You sent me some yeah. the other day. Yeah. So my. My goal this year was one thing and one thing only, uh, get a deer to make pastrami. So I, I made venison pastrami for the first time, and it was very well received. And, I mean, it was it was amazing. Uh, people, you know, when I was handing it out to people, they're like, I can't believe that this is venison. And so I think that's one of the biggest, like, accomplishments that I can take away from my evolution as a uh 
venison chef, I guess, in, in, in that. Because everything when I grew up was ground beef that, or ground venison. That was it. My mom didn't cook anything other than that. I mean, backstraps, ground. Everything one Everything year, fed ground. into the grinder. And that leads me to believe now in this day and age that we never did actually get our uh, deer back because they probably kept the backstraps. <laughs> but um, So then it was, I started making jerky and things like that and everything has been changing and more and more that I cook it it's like this doesn't taste like venison this doesn't taste like venison well it's not supposed to taste like venison it's just supposed to be good you're not supposed you know it's not supposed to be good for venison so the pastrami is what we what we started off with and then I've done a lot of reverse seared um, venison backstraps and steaks Um, we smoked a couple of venison neck roasts we just cooked up a whole bunch of ribs. We did make another round of asabuco. Um, this time we cut it with a hacksaw instead of a hatchet, so it was a lot more pleasurable. <laughs> you guys have eating, come a long ex- ways. Eating experience. <laughs> um, but, yeah, that's uh, that's what we had the other night is we had uh, asabuco ribs and uh, venison neck roast um, that we smoked and then finished in a, a crock pot. Well, good deal. Yeah, the, pic- the pictures you were sending me, like that, yeah, the smoke neck roast, I think that's what I was looking at all. Oh, it looked, fall- I mean, you could just pull it apart with your fingers. Oh, so. yeah, you just lifted it by the bone and it fell right off. It oh. was it was great. Excellent work. Well, hey, folks, this is Adam Miller uh, from Bowhunter Chronicles. Uh, Adam, where else can we find you? Are you on Facebook and Instagram and all that? Yeah, Facebook, Instagram, Bowhunter Chronicles. Um, you can check out all of that. And our podcast is everywhere you can find it. And, uh, the deer that I made the pastrami out of, you can see that hunt on our YouTube channel. Uh, my first self-filmed kill, so that was awesome, too. And uh, you can see a lot of funny things. That you want to talk about the world's first bow hunter. We got uh, three really awesome, epic misses. Uh, one, a turkey at five yards. One, what probably would have been the state record turkey for Michigan. And uh, then a really nice Michigan eight-point miss twice. Uh, at 28 yards and, and then 45, uh, so some some fun content on our YouTube channel if you're interested in checking those out too. So, well, good deal. I'm gonna let you walk around some more, Adam. But we're gonna sit down one of these days. We're gonna do a full episode here. But again, folks, Adam Miller, thanks for taking some time, sir. Oh, thank you. Well, hey, here we are again, uh, sitting down with Neil Summers. Uh, host of Chasing It on, you can find him both on Instagram and Facebook and YouTube. YouTube. He's also the co-chair of Indiana BHA. Neil, how did you find yourself in Michigan today? Well, I'm originally from Michigan. I was on Michigan's Backcountry Hunters and Anglers board. I just moved to Indiana last year and became their chair, but here I am at the Traditional Bow Expo in Kalamazoo. Gotcha. Neil, um, this has been something that really that your little, um, your, your side business there, chasing it, um, this is really something that you've grabbed onto as far as the traditional side of things, traditions. Mm-hmm. Talk to me a little bit about, uh, just tell me a little bit, brief bit about chasing it and then the direction that you guys are going with, with this idea of traditions. Yeah, you know, Chase and I started back in 2014, and kind of some life changes, as you know, having kids, they do that. 
kind of derailed that shortly after I got it rolling. And so I kind of put on a back burner Well, Now I'm finally in a place in my life I can put effort into it. So three years ago I came to this expo and met a good friend now, Ryan Tucker. And we kind of, I shot a few bows. I actually think I met you that year too. Yeah. And uh, shot a few bows. Well, then I picked up the traditional bow, McBitchy. And that's how I got hooked in the traditional. But chasing it, I, since I got hooked with traditional off the first bow, McBitchy, then I got a grayling green bear bow. And now I got a bow from Kalamazoo Bow Works. I'm fully in now, fully committed. So I figured why not tailor everything on chasing it to that. So I want to show everything in traditional archery as well as show my path in traditional archery learning because I'm about as new as you can get. Learning things as we go, taking the hits, and just rolling with them and just learning anything I can about traditional archery. And, you know, I grew up hunting with a compound. This is a whole different ballpark. I'm not even in the field now. Yeah. So what's the allure? What's the, what's the sexy part that is bringing you into, like, I mean, everybody's been here. There's, there's older folks that are here at the show. There's now younger folks. Like, what's, what's bringing you into this? Because technology-wise, we, we've surpassed all this. Mm-hmm. But what's, what's the drawback? Why, why are you now finding that this is something you want to dive into? The connectivity to everything. You know, there's been people all throughout history, you know, Thoreau, Emerson, um, some p- other ones that I'm not going to mention that did not do good things, but they all fought against transcendentalism or fought against growing. And that's kind of like how I look at traditional archery is we have, we're getting inundated with technology all day. Your phone's in your pocket, probably how you're listening to this. All day you're getting hit with this stuff, and it's just traditional archery gives me that remnant of, like, the past. And I just love the simplicity of it and relying more on you in your body, you know, kind of understanding that it's maybe not the equipment that you got to change. It's something you're doing with your release or your back tension, something like that. And that's kind of what resulted in it. And also, I feel like you get a little more connected to the outdoors because you have to have those animals in a lot closer than you would typically with a crossbow or compound or even, you know, rifle. So I'm getting a lot more connection with the outdoors in the process of using traditional archery. Yeah, as even being like an outdoor athlete is becoming the next thing where you're you're training to go harder, you're training to go farther, you're training to be a better hunter. Like, this is almost like a martial art, yeah. so to speak, that it's, it's a discipline as opposed to, you can't throw money at it, and being stronger isn't going to help you. Being faster isn't going to help you, but... You need to take the time to practice. You need to take the time. You know, Karate Kid, he had to wax on, wax off in order to get good at karate to beat whoever it was at the end. Mm-hmm. We as traditional archers, or even just archers, both traditional and non, need to practice. And I think even more so with the traditional side where we're not relying on a sight, we're not relying on a rest. There's going to have to be like a discipline aspect to it. Mm-hmm. When you're practicing with your current bow now, it's not what money I can put into it. It's what you're doing. Mm-hmm. What, what are you doing? What kind of shot process are you putting together with, with this bow? Well, 
I found out when I picked up this bow from Dave at Kalamazoo Bow Works, he started looking at my drawing going, man, you're under drawing. I was drawing 26 inches, and Nick, as you know, I'm not, a 26-inch draw is real short for me. Right. I'm six foot one, six foot two. I should probably be in the 29s. So, and I was all over where I was anchoring, so Dave threw a clicker on to adjust that. So right now I'm kind of fixing form issues. I had, I sat down with Stephen Doherty, who's part of Michigan BHA, and he kind of addressed some of the other issues I was having. Right now I'm just working on form more than anything else and trying to get the right form down so I can move forward in learning. So with uh, with the current bow you've had, yeah. you haven't taken an animal yet with it, have you? No, I have not taken an animal with any of the three traditional bows I've had. I took a deer this year with my compound, but not my longbow. I didn't have my longbow until two weeks ago. Oh, okay, gotcha. He was still working on it. Yeah, when I, I did a video for him back in October, and you can find that on Chasing His Page, under Chasing the Passion, Kalamazoo Bow Works. The bow he was actually working on in the video mm-hmm. was mine. Oh, okay. So. Now that you're going to be switching to probably a compound, that is, that's your hope or your goal is now is to chase critters with a traditional bow. Yeah. Um, are you going to give up the compound or is it you're, just, you're having fun in both worlds? I'm having fun in both worlds. The compound, I think, is going to become a fallback in case it gets to towards the end of the season. Or I'm hoping I would just take one with a rifle in that case if I really need to meet yeah. and just not pick up my compound. But I do still have my compound. I plan on still practicing hunting with it. But for me, the way I have my compound set up, it's just so easy for me. I can pick it up after not shooting for three months and be pretty much right where I was. And I started losing interest because of that because I perfected the way my bow, how I shoot well. I'm not saying it would work for anybody else, but how I shoot well, I perfected it good enough where I had no concerns. Mm-hmm. Well, longbow, it's a different game every day. It's a different game every shot. You know, you're not consistently good with it. I mean, most people get consistently good, but you go two months without it, I bet you I can't, no one would be able to pick that up and shoot like they were before. And that's kind of how it is. is It creates, like you said, a much more stricter practice, and you have to be more disciplined in your the art of it. And I kind of, that's why I fell in love with it. Now, people tend to naysay it because of, oh, well, we moved past this, like you said. We moved past this. Technology's better. The ethics aren't there. But I think with technology going so far, ethics start to fall away anyways because people start relying on their equipment more and start practicing less, like with a crossbow. When There's nothing wrong with crossbow hunting. But people start relying on it less and get more risky or ballsy in what they're really willing to do because they they think their equipment will cover up issues a little better. Yeah. And with traditional, most traditional hunters understand that they can't go haphazardly into this and expect a good turnout. So that's kind of my allure to traditional archery. Gotcha, gotcha. Kind of circling back around, um, we touched a little bit on your, your channel, Chasing It. Um, and you're focusing more on the traditions of, I mean, not even just traditional archery. Mm-hmm. You're adding in, you got yourself a flintlock as well. Yeah, Hawkins style side lock. Yeah. So, so bringing back some of the old, old style shooting. Um, and if folks go on there, we'll find Chasing It. I'll, I'll try to put a link in the show notes. Um, 
just an awesome talk with uh, Dave from Kalamazoo Bow Works. And that was just a really interesting dive into what's, what is traditional archery. That it's not, you know, a, coming out of a machine shop. Granted, it takes effort and it takes craftsmanship to mill out a riser out of a block of steel. There's, I mean, there's tolerances here and tolerances there. And computers have helped with that. The, the CAD program has been able to, to enhance that. But Dave's almost taken a step way back where he's using a bandsaw and using basic sandpaper, mm-hmm. making the shape, gluing this together, having forms that it really is like a it's, a, it's an old school style of looking at stuff. So anyway, talk to us a little bit about, about chasing it. What are, we, what are we gonna expect coming down the pipeline? We have that video, what else is coming down? I have some other videos, chasing the passion videos, with some other boyers, some other bow makers, some other distributors within the trade industry down the pipeline that I'm gonna work with them. I'm coordinating some of that today, as well as I'm gonna be producing a semi, you know, monthly series as needed called Chasing the Tradition. And what that is, is that's just showing my journey in all this. You know, I'm into fly fishing now, I'm into traditional bow, and into, you know, the Psylocke black powder. And it's a whole different ball game for me. Black powder being the, probably the one I was most familiar with working in the uh, gun industry previously. Um, but everything's still so foreign to me. So it's kind of like a kid at Christmas. Like, it's all got, still got all the lights and glamour. And I'm still learning every day. And I think if you're not learning, you're kind of being stagnant in life. And that's kind of what I was getting out of compound hunting. Like I said, there's nothing wrong with it. It just, I, it was losing, losing the allure to me. So I think this traditional archery is just light, lit up a whole different world for me. And I it, truly enjoy it. And I met some of the greatest people in this industry. That's actually how I met you. Um, that and country hunters and anglers. That's you know, how I met you, Ryan Tucker, um, and many other people, Tom Jorgensen, some great people in the industry, and I cannot be any happier with how things are going and how it's looking with chasing it. Awesome. That's great. So, with the dairy that you did get with the compound, what have you done with it? What have you made uh, since down in that deer? Is it just still living in the freezer, or have you made something? Well, <laughs> I was actually going to go home last week with my son, because he was all excited because he gets to cut up deer. He's four years old. He gets to help grind. And before everybody freaks out that I'm letting a four-year-old near a grinder, I'm standing there, <laughs> not letting him put his hand in there. But I got an old 1940s grinder, so the thing will pretty much take a hand. Yeah, was, I saw that thing. You were posting it. That, what, how many horses is that? Is that a three-horse on yeah. there? That's a nice-looking grinder. Oh, yeah, you can push some meat in through it. <laughs> it was rather impressive. I haven't, I haven't jammed it yet. I'm, like, I'm pretty much standing on the block pushing it in and haven't jammed it. Good deal. But uh, I was actually going to go home last weekend, but due to the weather, we got some icy weather. I live two hours from my parents, so my dad ended up cutting up and processing the deer, the two deer we had and a bear by himself. But I made some snack sticks out of the year previous deer to get rid of some of the burger and share those at work and spread that around. Well, good deal. Hey, Neil. Yeah, I'm going to give you 30 seconds. Talk us, talk to us. Where can we find Chase in it? You know, what's some of the stuff we can look forward to? You can find Chasing It on pretty much all your social media prof- uh, platforms. Find us on Facebook, Chasing It, C-H-A-S-I-N. 
and then IT. And then same thing, find us on Instagram, the website, www.chasingit.com. And you can pretty much find anything from blog articles to videos. And we'll be releasing a lot more stuff coming up. Well, cool, cool. Hey, I'm excited to um, have you more here at the show. And then, uh, yeah, we'll check you out at the Pike Night later. So, right. hey, thanks for your time, Neil. Thank you. Folks, again, still we're hanging out here at the Kalamazoo Expo at the traditional show. And who do I run into but none other than Tex Gribner, the guy who can have a dip of chew in his lip while pulling back a, is that a legitimate 100-pound draw? Well, you know. Recurve? It's 100 pounds at 29 inches. I can get 29 inches out of it, but... My actual draw length is more like 27 inches just because that way I can shoot all year round. You show me one target archer that can deer hunt in actual winter rigging and get their fancy-ass draw length. And oh, by the way, they all wonder why they've all got shoulder problems when they're rolling through the joint with fake back tension where if you're right behind the arrow like Howard Hill... You can shoot heavy bows your whole life and never have a problem because you're not drawing through your shoulder joint. Anyways, yes, it's a it's a hundred pound bow, but in the interest of full candor, it is ninety three pounds at my draw length. It's made by Big Jim. It is an ebony bow with a green stripe in it because I'm an absolutely huge nerd. So when I got it made, I was big into the game Skyrim, and there is a material ebony in the Skyrim game in its game engine for making armor and weapons and such. So I had it made in 100 pounds to be like a Dragon Slayer bow. And, of course, I also have another bow that is 105 pounds that is a White Wolf Archery Beowulf that is a recurve. And I was like, I always wanted a 100-pound bow. But it was named Beowulf, and because if you remember your freshman English class in high school, by the way, Beowulf is an absolutely awesome story to hear, terrible to read. Why? Because it's an epic poem. It's kind of like how Shakespeare sucks to read, but awesome to see. But anyways, Beowulf at the end slays a dragon, and it was also said in that poem that Beowulf has the strength of ten men. It's either ten men or the grip of ten men in the strength of one hand. So, to hell with buying a 55-pound recurve that's named the Beowulf. That's just stupid. So, anyways, that one's 105 at 28, but it's 100 at my 27. So, anyways, I hope that answers your question. <laughs> it definitely does. And graciously, you let me uh, pick up the bow and uh, give it a whirl. And it's definitely like going from an F-150 up to a semi. Like, you got to know what you're doing and pulling it back as i as i pulled it back i i don't want to say i struggled but it definitely i had to be confident with what i was doing what kind of learning curve do you have to shoot consistent with a bow like that uh (laughs) well you see the main thing when you're talking about heavy draw weight bows is back in the day everybody shot heavy but nobody took days off And so, I guess the best way that I can explain shooting a heavy bow is, one, you're dealing with serious raw power. Also, from a consistency standpoint, you 
Well, okay, this is contrary to popular opinion and possibly contrary to popular fact, but a bow that stacks is a good thing in a certain extent because a bow that stacks weight, you can tell where you are in the draw weight based off of where you are in the draw cycle. So you know it's damn near as good as a clicker. When we're stacking 15 pounds between, you know, or 10 pounds between 27 inches and 28 inches, you know where you are because it's perceptible and you can feel it. Also, um, you have to start somewhere. And, you know, Howard Hill shot heavyweight. Bill Negley shot heavyweight. Bob Swinehart shot heavyweight. You know, and Fred Bear shot heavy draw weight, or what is today considered heavy draw weight. And they shot it well into long later in life than I hope to be alive for. And so you have to be diligent in it. But we're facing across the table, right? Mm-hmm. Let's pretend that I'm Attila the Hun, okay? Or you're, or I'm Genghis Khan. And I say, here is your bow, and you're one of my archers. If you don't want to be on the pile of bodies over there, you're going to figure out how to do this because there is no other option. It's kind of like growing up poor. You figure out how to be inventive because you don't have an option. If you want this to happen, you need to find a way to MacGyver some shit to make it work. So when it comes to shooting a traditional bow in heavy draw weight consistently, there isn't a huge learning curve. There's a, you might not even be able to get it back to your anchor the first time. You might not be able to do that for a month. But if you say, this is my goal, this is what I want to do, I'm not going to let anything stop me, but I'm also going to pay attention to what my body tells me and be safe about it, then you will be able to build up. And this is going to sound terrible. Everybody always tells me, like, you can shoot, you would shoot much better with a light draw weight bow. Blah, blah, blah. Well, one, I don't give a shit about shooting anything out at 40 yards. Right. So I don't need, quote, that level of accuracy. But also, uh, don't tell me what to do because your balls feel the size of soybeans right now because I'm able to do something that you feel intimidated by because it is... It's raw power. It's an addiction. When you shot that bow, did you not feel like you were doing something serious? It was, as I was drawn back, I had to put everything I could to, you know, just making sure my front arm was going to be in a set position. Like, there was no goofing around at this point. There was, I'm either I'm going to get hurt or hurt something if I'm not dedicated to this process. And when I let it go and watch that arrow fly into that target... It was like, this is, this was serious. Not that my bow at a lighter poundage, like I'm playing with it. I haven't killed anything with it. Holding your bow, I could definitely kill something with it. And not, not even to say that it's, the other bow isn't serious, is that you're literally harnessing raw power. You have three fingers on the string, and your other fingers, your other hand on the grip, and you... I mean, I hate to say you have to adrenalize yourself, but you draw back 
and you, you're literally holding the dragon by the tail, for lack of better words, because if you relax your front grip, guess what? The bow is going to come back and punch you in the face. And I've done that before, to be honest with you. I've broken knocks before. I mean, you're not, you're not necessarily going to seriously hurt yourself, but you also are more concerned about hurting something else because if you send a wild arrow. Now, on the topic of like a guy like Joel Turner that talks about the shot process, yeah. I like Joel. I respect Joel. People always say, you need an iron mind. And I'm like, I don't think you know what you're talking about because I have a shot process. It's just very rapid because sitting back here and holding this back <laughs> is not going to make it any better. If it's right when I hit my anchor point, or I should say if it's correct when I hit my anchor point, I'm letting the arrow go. Because why not? Why do I need to sit there and hold it? It's either right when I hit my anchor point, or it looks correct, I should say, or it's not. And if it's not, and everything doesn't feel correct, then you let down. There, hashtag iron mind, shot IQ. <laughs> but... If you've ever wrecked a vehicle or had an accident, you understand how fast your nerve conduction is and your mind is. You don't have to take your time. You just have to be right. Since getting out into the woods, um, what's your approach? Do you like sitting up in the tree or is it like, do you feel more comfortable on the ground? I know you've got some uh, Indiana, not Indiana, excuse me, Illinois property that's pretty rugged to get into. Oh, you mean me having to fast rope in? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, the problem is we're in the Louisiana Purchase, right? Public land, by and large, does not exist because the point of buying it from Napoleon was to settle it. And so anything that was farmable has been tilled under, and the only thing that's got trees on it is inhospitable. And so... I like hunting on the ground, preferably, but I also don't mind sitting in a tree. But hunting on the ground, if you can figure out where the deer are going, and I call it zeroing in click by click, like zeroing in a scope click by click, because let's face it, ladies and gentlemen, the only people that shoot a three-shot group are the people in the military that aren't necessarily buying their own ammo. <laughs> and all due respect to the military, that's just a joke. It's like, who the hell can afford to zero in three-round groups if you're not shooting 5.56 five, or 7.62 by 39? So it's like I call it zeroing click by click because we've all been like, well, I'm not getting the rifle zeroed this week because <laughs> I fired 20 shots and I'm still not on paper. Or I'm not on the center of the paper. I'm sorry, what was the question? I went off on a tangent. Um, ground or uh, tree stand? Oh, yeah, zeroing click, zeroing click by click. So, basically, I like hunting on the ground best in the early season or even in the late season, though, because if you can figure out where the deer are going, you have to watch them. And as a traditional bow hunter, you're going to be watching them because unless they're walking within at least or at most 15 yards of you, you're not going to be taking... I mean, maybe your skill level is high enough, maybe not. I'm not casting judgment. But it's like, if you're not sitting there 
if they're not inside of 15 yards, you're probably not taking a shot at them. So 50 yards might as well be 100 yards. So you have the opportunity to watch them outside of their flight zone and figure out where they're going. And so you take, let's say you've got a cornfield, right? Well, you can literally find a spot in the brush on the edge of that cornfield and watch where the deer come out. And then the next day, to hell with it, if the wind's right, go over there and sit where they come out. Because let's say that it is a shopping mall, right? Or a grocery store. You're walking down the grocery store. And I'm in the next aisle over. And you walk by the end cap past where I'm standing. And I punch you in the face. You were doing your regular everyday stuff. Had no reason to believe that you were going to get punched in the face. There was no wind that told you. You know, I didn't fart. You didn't smell me there on the other side of it. You didn't see me. You were probably buried in your phone. And then I step out and punch you in the face. You had no idea because you were doing what you were doing organically. And so hunting on the ground, you can get away with a lot because, one, there's more cover on the ground. And, two you can get away with it because deer get hunted from trees. If they see you on the ground, they're like, who's this dumbass over here on the ground? Is that a hiker? So they, there have been times where I have been ridiculously close to deer on the ground, but I've also not been able to get a shot because the angle was wrong or the camera wasn't on. Now sitting in a tree... I like sitting in a tree, but ideally, in a perfect world, the most exciting thing that you can do is have enough property to see where a whitetail beds down and then go back in there and get him, you know, walk up on him if the wind's right. I like it. Now, being a guy, because you're in Illinois and that's your hunting property, yeah. um, is, is Texas where you're from or Louisiana? You're, you're oh, heck Southern. no. I am from central Illinois. Tex Grebner was a call sign that I had in high school because of athletics. I showed cattle in 4-H and pigs in 4-H and always went to the state fair. You know, when I grew up, you know, with rodeo stuff. So I was always kind of a cowboy. Well, then, you know, you get a call sign. Well, in central Illinois, I was the closest thing that we had to a cowboy. So then I ended up with the call sign of Tex. And then when I started my YouTube channel, it's like, you need a stage name, right? This is back in the early days of the internet, like the MySpace days, where it was like you could be whoever you wanted to be because nobody cared who you were on the internet. Imagine back in the day, the old MySpace profiles where... Nobody in your town had a MySpace profile, so you could basically pretend to be anybody you wanted when you were talking to people from, like, other states. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you get called out on your bullcrap in, like, study <laughs> hall. In the, anyways, the point is, like, I had a state... Tex Grabner always seemed like a good stage name, so then that... I'm actually from central Illinois. I've never really pretended to be from Texas. But it, it's a cool name, so... It was yeah. given to me, and I went with it. It's kind of like how you can't give yourself your safari name mm -hmm. is the name that the trackers give you. Well, my coaches gave me the call sign, so I just went with it and ran with it.
I love it. I love it. Well, hey, here's my last one then. Um, with your whitetails from Illinois, oh, they're probably corn-fed, at least at some point. Big old fat cap on the back of them. With those deer, favorite dish that you make, what is that? Uh, well, my most popular dish year after year seems to be tag soup. Um, <laughs> now, is that a little salty because the tears are in there? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, see, the truth is, and I know I'm kind of dodging the question uh my favorite dish when i actually have whitetail because let's be honest i know that you are a kind of a field to table kind of guy and this is an unpopular opinion i would argue that because we have gunpowder nobody in the world if they're honest in the first world is, quote, filling their freezer with a trad bow. That's not the motivation. There are more efficient ways of doing it, but it's nice and tidy when you're talking to non-hunters to justify the bloodlust. I mean, let's be honest. We're talking about something very visceral that is very hard to understand. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I guess I'm probably making enemies by being honest here, but it's like nobody is hunting with a recurve for the meat. Right. right. Now, we use the meat. We respect the animal. We utilize the meat. We're not just cutting the head off or taking the hide. But it's like there's more efficient ways of doing this stuff. As a traditional bow hunter, and I know that this isn't the dish question, but this is something that I feel needs to be said. As a traditional bow hunter, just like how being able to shoot a heavy draw bow is a discipline thing, the way that I define traditional bow hunting is a persistent commitment to the acceptance of failure. Now, meanwhile, some guys talk to me about, like they'll say, oh, or would you rather hunt with, why would you hunt with a modern, or why wouldn't you hunt with a modern slug gun, or would you go with a smoothbore 12-bore flintlock? And I'm like, first of all, you don't understand that I am a man that has walked barefoot with a spear and hunted pigs. Okay, so don't give me this technology argument. You know, don't give me this technology argument because it's a persistent commitment to the acceptance of failure. And on the whole, hunting for sport, I believe in a sporting chance. So I just wanted to answer that because it's like, in order to hunt for sport, the animal needs to have a reasonable expectation of escaping you or evading you or whatever. But... I'm also, I also utilize the meat, but as a traditional bow hunter, <laughs> That's Fred, like the end all be Fred Bear said you could go awful hungry hunting with a bow and arrow. So my favorite dish for whitetail backstrap or loin, if we're using butchery terms, favorite dish, take the silver skin off, take the loin Make medallions, get yourself some carnivore red wine, and then marinate that overnight with a little bit of salt in there, and then get yourself some shore lunch, bread that stuff, but you got to make sure that you let them get up to room temperature Mm -hmm. so that they're not super cold in the middle, but bread those red wine deer medallions, 
and throw them in a fry daddy and they'll come out like little deep fried pickles you bite into them and it's warm warm red center and you bite into it and you're getting the rare center venison with the crispy outside and just that wine taste in the middle of it i mean that's my favorite you know and throw a little salt and pepper on the outside of them but again as a as a hunter that hunts for sport, for thrill of the chase, yes, I utilize the meat, but I feel that it bears saying that in order to hunt for sport, the reason that sport hunting has such a bad reputation is because very few people are willing to give the animal a sporting chance. The idea of fair chase. The idea of fair chase. Now, then we get into a whole other argument of fair chase in itself of at what point do we let people who are trying to ban hunting ban methods of obtaining animals and under the auspice of fair chase, like, for instance, lion hunting with dogs. Oh, no, that's not fair chase, they say. And then you don't have lion hunting anymore. Yeah, that's a, that's a whole thing that we could touch on. I know I only got you for 10, 15 minutes, but I love the idea that you presented that it's, you know, we utilize the meat, then we get it. It is a prize. But at the same time, the idea of, uh, of sporting chance, of a traditional archer, you're going to be hungry. It's not about the meat that you're bringing in. It's about the chase. Yeah, it's about the experience. Like, and it's a pride thing, too. Because you you go out day after day after day. It's a persistent commitment to the acceptance of failure. And you've got to be mentally strong to be a traditional bow hunter. Or, or at least for a long period of time. Because you can get put on animals. You can get put on animals. If you come into traditional famous, and no disrespect to anybody... I'm not begrudging them their success. They work for it in other ways. But it's like if you come into traditional bow hunting already famous, you're a ready-made star, of course people are going to put you on animals, and you skip the learning curve of sucking at it, you know. And so the fair chase but thrill of the chase. It's, it's so much that you want to go out. Because I had a 10-point buck within 10 yards of me on the ground. I'm sure you're familiar with this from way back in the day. And I had it, and he was raking on a multiflora rose bush up there on a hillside between, on a terrace between cornfields. And I started out at 30 yards. And then I got to 20 yards. And then I got to 15 yards. And then I got to 12 yards. And I, I mean, I could have killed this deer at 12 yards. But I'm thinking, this thing is going to be a Pope and Young scoring deer. But then I thought, you know what to hell with it. I want to get closer. Eight yards in, break a stick, and he is gone. But you've got to want to be close. And the parting words of wisdom that I will say, a lot of traditional archers that are coming in want to learn how to shoot accurately. If you can shoot accurately at five yards, that's good enough. If you get close enough, your aim will be true enough. 
because I don't care what you think you're going to do. When you get an animal in front of you, you're going to forget everything you ever thought you knew. You can shoot at a 3D deer at 20 yards all day long and just be fine. But as soon as you come to full draw on a deer that's 20 yards away, that's a living, breathing creature, you're all of a sudden going to realize just how small that thing is in your sight window, you know. And so, not to say that people can't shoot accurately further at animals. You know, Fred Bear killed that tiger like 75 yards away with a recurve. But you want to get close enough where you can't miss. But you also have to be willing to say... Okay, I'm not going to draw. This isn't going to happen. I'm not going to take the shot. So closing is you want to, if you get close enough, your aim will be true enough. Because you're not starving. You're not hunting essentially just for the meat. You owe it to the animal not to send that arrow if you're not 100% confident. And you know how you are 100% confident? Being where you can literally look at it, draw, hit your anchor, and put the arrow where you want it to be. Now that sounds like a lot of big talk for somebody that hasn't killed a deer with a recurve, but it isn't through <laughs> lack of hours in the woods. And I would say that that's probably more true than uh, a lot of people are giving credit to. Giving us a dish that I, I really want to try, the little deep-fried medallions. That sounds like an epic dish. But food for thought that I can chew on the words that you're telling me right now, that sporting chance, sport hunting has a place. We are here to better ourselves. We're here to give the animal the best that we can be. And I appreciate all that you've been able to, to talk to us. Uh, Tex, give us a... Give us a shameless plug. Where can I find your videos? Where can I find more about Tex Grebner? Uh, TexGrebnerOutdoors.com has a merchandise store. Um, we don't really sell much merch, but we've got plenty of merch to sell. <laughs> um, I have a hashtag kill with stick shirt. Uh, I have a make it weird shirt. And I also have one of my most famous lines... Life ain't like the pornos, hunting ain't like the TV show shirt. Uh, also, just put in Tex Grebner Outdoors in a YouTube search. God knows what else you're going to find. <laughs> but there's that. And I believe that I am at Tex Grebner Outdoors on Instagram. And also, just a shameless plug Three Rivers Archery. If you use the code of TexGrebner in your checkout at 3RiversArchery.com, it will give you a shipping discount on all your Trad Life supplies because it shows your support for Tex Grebner Outdoors, but it also gives you a discount so everybody wins. Hey, all right. Beautiful. Tex, thank you so much. You're welcome. Have a wonderful day. You too. This is more of a reflection. Um, at the show, I did talk with a gentleman by the name of Henry Botnick. He uh, was a part of, actually, his company over in Germany, uh, Bearpaw, started over there uh, in Europe, and then recently he has sold his company to a family member, 
and started on his own journey of botanic bows and teaming up with shrew bows. Um, and I got a chance to chat with him. Um, currently, my trad bow is a bear paw slick stick, 45 pounds at 28 inches. So, of course, my short inch uh, draw brings me to like 43, 42 pounds. Anyway, got a chance to talk with him and get the maker to sign my bow, which was pretty cool. And I'm kicking myself. I had the recording equipment there, and I didn't stop to talk with Henry. I was nervous uh, just because I wasn't sure how uh, clear his English was being from Germany. And, you know, we sat and talked for a couple minutes, and the guy has come a long way in English. So, I, yeah, should have had the equipment, should have had the mics on. Perfect case of shoulda, woulda, coulda. So here's my reflection on our short conversation that we had. I talked to him about his company, Bearpaw, and how that started in Germany. Uh, it's a family company where he was president and CEO and had a son or son-in-law, I forget which one, show interest in the company and went to work for him. He soon had some ideas of his own for the company and wanted to put things in place and Henry put some options out there. He said, hey, we can partner and in five years I'll retire or I can sign the whole thing over to you. I'll retire now. You pay me out and uh, you get to take the company where it's at. And he decided and they decided that he was going to buy out his father-in-law and continue the path of Bearpaw um, with with Henry uh, doing his own thing. And so that was fun to hear that there's a company uh, in the European side that's a family-made company, but then even uh, Bearpaw USA has been coming over, and that's where I got my connection with the Slick Stick. Now, Henry gets to focus on his designs in a new avenue. He's partnered with Shrewbos and is working on not only botanic designs, but working with Shrew and making amazing uh, pieces of equipment. Not only do they shoot amazing. I grabbed one of the uh, Shrew bows and went and shot it at the show. And just like the slick stick, it's light in the hand, but man, it, it fires out bows, or excuse me, fires out arrows extremely well. Uh, very pleased with the shot on those, and I don't feel like it's lacking for speed at all. Uh, it's it's definitely like a little sports car. You step up to it, and you wonder what kind of power it has, and then, yeah, whammo, it hits you, and uh, you're on your way. So it was great to shoot that. So then my conversation transitioned to what's hunting like in Germany and in uh, in in Europe? And he said that there's not a lot of opportunity, that hunting really isn't a thing over there. Uh, yeah, there's preserves and it's, you know, areas around Germany, there are, there are opportunities and it's more of a, you just pay and, and go find the animal. Um, and that's not what, what Henry's about. He 
uh, has come to the United States and just enjoyed the North American model and has loved uh, hunting all over. But he's also been here in Michigan and really dived into the traditional deer camp that we have here in our state. I shouldn't say just traditional, but just the the deer camp mentality or the deer camp way of life that we've got here in Michigan and really enjoyed a hunt and several hunts up in the UP. So he, he did get a, a fork buck up there and he's also got a doe and so was talking to me about that on how he's been able to take his bows that he's made for hunters and actually got to put that into practice which was which was super fun to hear. He also talked about that archery as a sport is far bigger in Germany and in Eastern Europe than it is here in the States. Now it's continuing to grow and grow, but there's a lot more field archery and target archery that happens across the pond. I would equate it to kind of like golf, where we've got paid players that are sponsored and then go play golf. They have paid sponsored archers that shoot either 3D or field target or whatever is set up. So the the following and the recreation archery that happens on the east side is, is much more. And he brought up a very interesting point uh, that I didn't anticipate, but over in Germany, there are shoots that won't let you wear camouflage. There's a stigma with camouflage in Europe where it's a bad omen. Either it's, you know, militia-oriented or they don't appreciate the hunting of sport or the sport hunting of it. And so anytime camo is involved, they won't let you wear that. It shoots. And Henry made it a point to say, well, if you don't allow camouflage, I'm not going to participate in these shoots. Um, that's his statement of saying that he enjoys hunting and that archery is a uh, ethical form to take animals, an efficient way to take animals given the right opportunity. He's also got his own tournaments that he sponsors over, and he did started those with bear paw and now transitioned to just with botanic bows, but he will do what he refers to as kill tournaments. It's an art, or it's a 3D tournament, but set up in hunting situations where the animal is either in the habitat or set up in a realistic hunting situation and you need to make the shot. And he allows and encourages camouflage to be worn. The same way that Henry will not go to a tournament with camouflage, there's folks on the opposite side, of course, that if camouflage is allowed, then we're not going to participate. He doesn't look, he doesn't mind that. But he just says that as his tournament, camouflage is allowed because we enjoy the sport of hunting and the chase. Uh, and I just really liked hearing that from a gentleman that didn't grow up in the States, but really does appreciate our passion for the chase and for the sport of archery and of hunting. Again, I'm still kind of kicking myself because I didn't have the mic's recording. I didn't have that set up. Maybe one of these days I'll get him on uh, and I'll be a little bit quicker on, on getting the mics to him. 
but I really enjoyed talking with him and having him, you know, even just a Sharpie signature on my bow, uh, having the maker sign the bow was, was super cool. Uh, for me, more of as, as a sentimental thing. And as I was talking to him, I said, hey, I, I tried uh, to get an animal with the slick stick, and it, the opportunity didn't present itself in the way that I took the shot. But again, I am trying, I am working to get blood on this arrow and on this bow. Uh, and I think with the signature, that's going to help it out. He laughed at that. He thought that was pretty funny. But um, very encouraging uh, statement. And from an archer that, yeah, grew up in a way different environment than we did, grabbing onto a stick and string, a bow and arrow, it's almost primitive and it really presents a challenge that even people in many different areas come to love the sport of archery. So there you have it. We have three different perspectives. A skeptic, a person who's dove completely in, and then even the person who's gone off the further deep end making traditional archery an extreme sport. My take on it, my response, is that, yeah, it's trendy. And I agree with Adam that jumping in uh, just because it's cool may not be for everybody. It does require shooting every day. It is a discipline that you need to develop and that it's going to uh, change the way that you shoot. You're going to appreciate the skill level that you develop from that. The more that you do it, the better that you get. And that's a fun part of the archery. That now going over into the same territory as Neil, that he's diving into something that is... It's got a lot of romance behind it. It's got a lot of uh, passion behind it because it's something you need to develop. It's something you need to work on. And with seasons that are now focusing on primitive archery or primitive firearms like a flintlock or black powder only, there's a nostalgia. There's a going back in time feeling with that. Does it use the latest and greatest technology? No. Is your range going to be uh, changed up? Yeah. But to use those type of equipment, it really does add a sense of fun and excitement to what you're doing. I myself wanted to find a way to keep doing archery year-round and to make practice more exciting. My compound that I mentioned earlier, where I would fillet my forearm and the beginning story, I, I wanted something that would bring fun back to practice. I enjoyed shooting my compound, but it, you could get only a few arrows in before you did grow tired. A, because my form was bad, but B, that you would have to extend distances to add to the fun. With a traditional bow, 
fun can be had at 20 yards. It can be had in the front yard or the backyard. The distance isn't the big thing. It's the really bringing in the group, really narrowing down what you're shooting. The idea of being able to just pick out an object like a dead stump and shoot it and not have the arrow completely shatter and explode and then waste a $15 arrow, but rather walk over and be able to pull the arrow out of the stump and use it again. Yeah, you're going to rip off fletchings, knocks are going to get broken, and eventually the arrow will probably start to break apart. But at the same time, you've offered more opportunity than just shooting at foam or shooting at uh, a bag target. You can now find different objects or take a shot at those squirrels that seem to be all around you all the time when you're in the deer woods. So instead of going into target, you know, a target bow with a lot of bells and whistles to it, going more money into that rig, I went the route of traditional archery, as opposed to work on the bow to help make me better. I'm trying to make me better to help the bow. Since picking up the traditional bow, I think my compound game has gotten better. I'm able to hold longer. I'm able to keep a more steady front arm. I think it really has brought in my groups. Now, still using the compound in a winter league where I'm shooting at uh, a five-spot target is also practice, and I've got some coaching alongside, which has been helpful from friends to say, eh, I want you to take a look at where your anchor is, what are you doing with your front arm, work on your shot sequence. That's all good stuff, but I think that I've come where I am because I'm also doing the traditional archery as well. Because it's different, it adds more of a a fun, new feeling to what I'm doing, but still staying in the realm of archery. The people I find in traditional archery as well, going to the Kalamazoo show or to these uh, traditional shoots, everybody's willing to offer some advice and they're not willing to throw it down they're not going to throw it down your throat which is super nice they ask if you want some advice and they give you some pointers you have boyers who make the bows who want to see your bow who has nothing to do with their company but yet they want to feel it they want to shoot it they want to see how how this differs from their bow and how different tuning uh, of the string and of the riser is going to affect the flight of the arrow. It's all, it's all real buddy-buddy setup, which is really fun. It's very inclusive, it's very enjoyable. Children, women, fellas, everybody can be involved. So that's my response to uh, Neil and to Adam on their, their viewpoints. And then we jump into text that takes traditional archery to the next level where he's not just uh, he's not just working on getting his groups tighter but he's working on being able to draw a heavier bow and get those groups tighter his reasoning behind having a heavier bow in those later seasons 
that second archery season where it's cold out, where you are bundled up. You've got layers of either down, you've got polyester, you've got puffy, you've got wool. You, you're walking around uh, built up with layers that getting proper form with a recurve or a longbow does become difficult. So having a heavier pound bow and maybe not getting to full draw allows you uh, still to be effective, but yet uh, maybe not getting back to that anchor point. But at the same time, as he's mentioned earlier in his uh, interview, just grabbing the tail of the dragon and being able to control it is, uh, is incredible. To feel the raw power that you're holding back and releasing that arrow, it's, it's a very exciting uh, type of shooting. And effective, you know. You've got that stiff of an arrow, that heavy of an arrow coming out of that much power. It's going to do some damage, which is why we're out there hunting in the first place, to get the damage so that we can then retrieve the animal. I don't like tracking, and I'm sure there's a lot of people that are in the same wheelhouse as me. So all in all, it was a great fun time down there at the Kalamazoo Show. And I know this isn't usually in our wheelhouse to be talking specifically archery. But I do enjoy the points of view and the different uh, aspects that traditional archery does offer. That it is a step back into the past, where it's just a stick and a string, where it's a, either a takedown recurve or a one-piece longbow. Everybody's able to participate, and all in all, we're here to get better. And that's what it's all about. So hey, thanks for joining in, and uh, keep your knife sharp.